Hi, welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is episode 27 in the book of Hebrews titled, Sinning Deliberately is a Dangerous Business, where we discuss Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. I am Joel Harford, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, we come upon a very scary portion of scripture where the author gives a serious warning here in verses 26 through 31. What do you have to say about this section? Really, these are some of the most terrifying words in the entire Bible. You know, the, the scripture later says in this the same book, God is a consuming fire. These words, these words are fiery words. They're scary words. And so the entire epistle of Hebrews, and we've talked about this, is an epistle of warning. And again, let's remind ourselves of the context. It's written to Jewish people who had made a profession of faith in Christ, but who were under intense pressure from Jewish friends and relatives and authority figures to forsake Jesus Christ as the Messiah, to forsake him, and to turn back to Old Covenant Judaism in which they had been raised, including animal sacrifice, going to the temple, all of the Jewish rituals, all of that. And the author here, his remedy is the book of Hebrews, which is a warning epistle. So the main tone here is one of a serious warning if they turn back the tone of this text here that we're looking at today if they turn back they are looking at hell they're looking at eternal conscious torment in hell nothing could be more terrifying and so the author is giving them the most serious warning possible that also teaches us that warnings are appropriate in preaching and in teaching and in evangelism in parenting frankly in all of these these settings, serious warnings, if you turn your back on Christ, are appropriate. Yeah. Well, for the sake of our audience, I'm going to read chapter 10, verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So my first question to you, Andy, begins with verse 26. He says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, and, and so on. What is the connection here between verse 26 and the preceding passage? So the previous section gave us those two exhortations. Let us draw near to God through faith in Christ, and let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but let us go on meeting together. So let us draw near to God, and let us draw near to each other. So that's the context here, and he gives a very positive exhortation, saying that we should um, spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. For, and then he goes into the warning section here, if we deliberately keep on sinning, etc. So the idea is very positive that we should gather together and encourage one another as we see the day approaching. But that day will be not just a positive, happy day, but also the darkest day in human history. That's Judgment Day. 
And so it's a very positive, happy day for Christians as they finally get their eternal rewards and their eternal fellowship with God. But it's also a very difficult day for non-Christians in which they are condemned to hell, in which they hear the words, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So that's the day that's approaching. And so this is the negative part of the exhortation. Right. Now, in the context, he says, you know, if we go on sinning deliberately, what exactly does it mean to, quote, go on sinning deliberately? Well, it either could mean the big picture sin of rejecting Christ, deliberately turning your back on Christ. I think that would be where I would lean here, trampling the Son of God underfoot, as he's about to say, rejecting Christ. If you keep doing that, if you deliberately keep playing at that, could be the these Hebrew Christians have already begun forsaking the assembling of themselves. Some have already been in the habit of doing that. And they're not just missing church. They're choosing to turn away from the new covenant. They've made that choice. And so he's reaching out to them now and saying, look, if you deliberately keep on doing that, and that is a sin, if you deliberately keep on forsaking the assembling of yourselves together with other Christians because you have decided to go back to old covenant Judaism, to forsake Christ, to turn your back on him, if you keep on doing that, there's nothing that's left for you except wrath. So that could be what I think he means. It could be if you keep on living in a life of sin generally, but that would not really fit the context here, like you know, sexual sin or, or you know, you you've got other sin patterns in your life, etc. Yeah, I don't think that's really what the author is saying, although that's true as well. If you know, it says in Romans eight thirteen and fourteen, if if you live according to the flesh, you will die meaning go to hell. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. That means eternal life, heaven. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. So that's that would be that context. You've got to live a life of holiness, not a life of sin. But the context here really has to do with apostasy from Jesus. Right, right. Now he says this interesting phrase, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And he said, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth which they did receive the knowledge of the truth. They received the gospel. We've already established that. He says, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, that is a challenging phrase. What does that mean in this context, that there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment? What do you make of this? Right. So, as the author says, you have received a knowledge of the truth. You've received the gospel. He goes into much greater detail in chapter 6. They have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, have have, you know, delighted in the aspects of the gospel. They've heard it. You know, it's like the, the, the stony ground hearer. You've received the word with joy. You've heard the gospel, all that. Okay. So in this case, you have deliberately chosen to sin, to forsake the assembling of yourself together, to forsake Jesus. You're turning your back on your Christian friends. You're turning your back on Jesus himself. If you deliberately keep on doing it after you have received a knowledge of the truth. Now, one of the key principles here is judgment is in proportion to knowledge. The more you know, the more severe your judgment will be. The servant who knows his master's will and doesn't do it is beaten with many blows, but the servant who did not ma know his master's will and didn't do it receives only a few blows. So the idea here, and Jesus openly taught that, is the principle of judgment is it's in proportion to knowledge. The more you know, the more you're accountable for. And so these are people who have been thoroughly instructed, even by apostles it seems, thoroughly instructed in the gospel. 
and they are deliberately turning their backs on Jesus. So for them, he says, there's no sacrifice for sin that remains. So there's different ways to understand that, but one is just the overall press of the of the uh, epistle here is that animal sacrifice is obsolete. There's nothing to go back to. And they might say, oh yes, there is. We've got, we've got the temple still standing. I think it was still standing. We can go to Jerusalem. We can go today if we want. But in one sense, he's saying, look, God isn't there. God has left that behind. The glory of God has left the temple forever. When Christ rose from the dead, when he died and rose from the dead, that temple itself became obsolete as any significant place. And so if you think you're going to go there and find there a sacrifice for sin that God will accept, you will not. There is no sacrifice for sin that remains. Jesus is the final word. You know, in the past, God spoke to our, for, to our forefathers at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So Jesus is God's final word. Jesus is also God's final sacrifice. There's no other sacrifice for sin that remains. Animal sacrifice is done. So God, it'll, you'll only be adding to the wrath. There's no sacrifice, no blood that could be poured out for your sins. There's nothing left. So animal sacrifice is obsolete. Jesus is all you have. And if you turn your back on Jesus, you have nothing left. There is no other atoning sacrifice for sin. Right. And he says that there's a fearful expectation of judgment and of this fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So what is the author teaching us that if we reject Jesus, what we can expect in the future? It's, it's terrifying. These words are terrifying. He picks up on the word remains. He said, no sacrifice for sin remains. Parenthetically, let me say, I, I, my mind now goes to the book of Lamentations where the temple has been destroyed by the Babylonians. Jeremiah the prophet warned about this, warned and warned and warned. And now... Everyone but a tiny remnant who the prophet Ezekiel pictured as taking a few hairs from his head and hiding them in the garment of the fold of his garment. Everybody else died by the sword, famine, and plague. They're dead. The city's smoldering. Jeremiah himself is one of the remnant protected. He's sitting there on one of the hills overlooking the city of Jerusalem. And there's nothing there. How desolate lies the city once so full of people. There's nothing left. So spiritually, God's saying that's true of the animal sacrificial system. There's nothing left. It's gone. It's smoldering. It's done. Now, you have to see that by faith because I think the temple was still standing, but there's nothing left. But there is something left, and that is the wrath of God. And he said, all that remains is a terrifying wrath, uh, a raging, consuming fire that will consume the enemies of God. That's what's left. So you turn your back on Jesus. You make God your enemy. And nothing that is left for you, there is nothing left for you except this statement here, what the author calls a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire in one translation. What does it say there in the ESV? Yeah, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. It's terrifying. And so all that's left for you is not hope. You're talking about the future. You're talking about what's left, what's still remaining. What, what your future is, raging fire the consuming fire of the enemies of God. So the author, the author is pointing ahead, and he is, he is talking about the greatest terror there is. There is no greater terror. I remember once, Joel, years ago, I'll never forget this, um, I worked in uh, 
the semiconductor industry in Massachusetts, and we had this uh, thing called the electron beam reactor. And it was a, a fierce electron beam that was at a very, very high temperature, and it was curving through a magnetic field into a crucible. And I looked through welder's glasses through already darkened glass, and it was still pretty bright. It was, you know, it was, it was not dangerous for me to look, but we needed like double, you know, filtering of the light. It was that bright. It was a white, bluish light, and it was into this crucible, and it, and it evaporated these metals. And then it got plated onto the semiconductors that was spinning around above it. And it just seemed to me to be a picture of the wrath of God. It was this this dedicated stream of heat that bore down on metal and evaporated it. And I think that God's wrath is greater than that. There's nothing left for you if you reject Christ other than the raging fire of the wrath of God. And it's described in the book of Revelation, Revelation 14, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night. So he really is talking about hell here, eternal conscious torment. And so there's nothing left for you except the fire of God's wrath. And he'll treat you like an enemy. He will look on you as an enemy, not a friend. And all of the, the omniscience, the, the knowledge of God, and all of the power of God will be combined and dedicated to your eternal destruction. I don't think there could be anything more terrifying than this. And yet it's not happening. Their lives go on. And so the author is trying to stimulate them to a fear of the future that they do not see. They have no evidence of it in their daily lives, but it's coming. And so there is this grace of fear, like Amazing Grace in the hymn says, "'Tis grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieve." He wants his readers to fear hell and flee to Christ despite the fact they can't see any evidence of it all, to take these fierce words and feel the weight of it, and to feel the heat of hell ahead of time so that they'll flee to Christ. Wow. That is, that is powerful, and that's heavy. It's a very heavy doctrine, the wrath of God. Yeah. Uh, but it's important. We have to have a, a whole picture of, of God, not just the loving God who saves, but also the God who... Yeah, we were talking, I think, before we went on this podcast about some evidences of this, the fearful expectation of raging fire. And some of the enemies of God have displayed that. Um, they've died in horror. They've died in terror. And they knew they were going to hell before they died. This is a fearful expectation of judgment, of condemnation. And they had a foretaste of hell while they were on earth. We were reading the account of Joseph Stalin, who died in such a terrifying way that his daughter Svetlana wrote about it and said, I was terrified to see how my father died. And it's because God grants a peaceful death only to the just, only to the righteous. And she acknowledged her father was a tyrant. And so he had a horrified look on his face. He seemed to see something in the in, above their heads in a spiritual realm. His hand went up like he was bringing down some kind of curse. And, and in horror, he died in terror. And the same thing with Voltaire. The account of his death is terrifying, so much so that a maid that was looking after him um, said, I never want to see the death of a wicked person again, ever. It was that terrifying. Mm -hmm. And so there are a number of these accounts, and God, I think, sometimes grants people foretastes of hell, but does not grant them repentance. Like Thomas Paine, same thing, wrote Age of Reason, an atheistic tract that destroyed the faith of many. 
And God gave him to know, it seems, ahead of time, that he was going to pay for his sins by eternal conscious torment in hell. And he knew about it, and there was nothing he could do to get out of it. Keep in mind, we think, well, why doesn't he just repent? Repent. God grants repentance, or he doesn't. So these are people that lived out what this text says, a fearful expectation of judgment, something that they knew was coming and they couldn't stop it. So it's terrifying. I want to go back and ask one more question from verse 26, where he says, if we go on sinning deliberately. And I know uh, you talked about in the context of trampling underfoot the Son of God. I know some this makes some Christians fearful because they might think that the author is teaching that Christians can't sin at all. Can you address that one? I want to hit that before we move on. Yeah, it's not the case that Christians cannot sin. And if you deliberately go on sinning, Honestly, all even if sin. you have a deliberate sin or sure. a series I mean, of deliberate to sins, to some degree, all sin is deliberate. I mean, you're you're doing certain things that displease God. The issue is what's in your heart, all right? And in your heart, if you hate your sin and you're fighting against it, then you're a Christian. If you are fighting against sin by the Holy Spirit, so this doesn't have to do with sins that we deeply regret and that we're, we're fighting against, but in, in through weakness, the weakness of the flesh we yield to from time to time. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And so the idea here is not talking about habitual sin that we can't, we keep struggling with. You know, with habitual sin, what you're going to find is you're going to have some successes and some failures. You're going to have some days in which you, you conquer, and then there's some other days in which it seems to have the better of you. So no, it's, I don't think it's addressing that. Those people, I would just say, follow First John chapter one. Confess your sins, and 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 repent from them, and fight against them by the Spirit. You can walk in the light as He is in the light, and still need an ongoing cleansing from sin. You can just read about that very plainly in First John one seven. Hence, all the talking about the great High Priest we have. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we need he's got that. a continual we need ministry, that continual river yeah. of grace. Now, in verse twenty-eight. The author goes back to the law of Moses to heighten his point. He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then it's a how much more argument. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. Mm. Now, there's a lot in here. Yes, there is. Uh, I want you to address first, what does it mean to trample underfoot the Son of God? Yeah, I, I'll do that. Let me let me just do what you said, which is the how much more argument. Two things are being compared. So throughout the book, the author is saying the new covenant is superior to the old. Jesus is superior to Moses. The superiority. So that's the strength of the how much more argument here. Look, if if God dealt so seriously with the violation of the lesser covenant and the lesser mediator. So Moses was just a servant in God's house. Jesus is a son over God's house. Old covenant is inferior. New covenant, superior. Old covenant, animal sacrificial system, inferior. New covenant, Christ, once for all sacrifice, superior. So how much more? So in the Old Testament, if you violated the law of Moses and you turned your back on the revelation of God in that, and you said, for example, let us go worship other gods, gods that you have not known or your fathers didn't know, then you'll get stoned to death. Even your your own your own spouse and your brother and and whatever witnesses that heard you do it will be the first to stone you. So that's very serious. Well, how much more serious 
is this sin. That's what that's the how much more argument. And now so what the author, the way he talks about the New Testament sinning or the New Testament apostasy is very terrifying language here. I mean, look what he says here. He says, how much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? Let's just stop there before we go through the whole list. He's trampled Jesus underfoot. In other words, you can't be a Jewish professor of faith in Christ, turn away from that, and go back to Old Covenant Judaism without walking over Jesus himself, trampling on Jesus. It's not free of charge. It's very personal here. You're leaving Jesus behind. Now, listen, recently I was talking to a man who was raised, I think, Lutheran or maybe Presbyterian, but who married a Jewish woman and became Jewish. So how do you become Jewish? You have to trample Jesus. It's very personal on the person of Jesus. You have to say, Jesus is not my Savior. Jesus is not the Messiah. Jesus is not the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. That's basically Christless Judaism now. That's what these folks were going to. They were turning their backs on Jesus and going back to a Judaism that was waiting for a Messiah that was coming. It's not Jesus. So you have to trample Jesus underfoot. And that's serious. So when I was a missionary in Japan, I found out the story of Japanese Christians who lived during the 17th century in the era of the shoguns. And these Japanese Christians were hated by the shoguns and they were hated by the, their unbelieving Japanese neighbors. And they were arrested for their faith because they were looked on as a threat to the state. And they were forced to renounce their faith in Christ. And the way they would do this is they would make a medallion with the face of Jesus on it and they'd put it on the ground and they would command the local population in that village to trample the medallion underfoot and say words of renunciation of Jesus, specifically on Jesus. And the Japanese Christians would never do this, but the pseudo-Christians, the apostate types, would do it without hesitation. And the Japanese Christians that would not trample on the medallion were burned to death slowly using green wood to maximize their suffering. And so but these Japanese Christians were heroes and heroines. They refused to trample Jesus underfoot. They just would not do that. Now, we as Protestants, we don't make medallions with the face of Jesus. But I wouldn't trample on that medallion. Even though I don't make those kinds of representations, I know what that would signify to the people watching. Obviously, we would need strength from the Holy Spirit to do that. It would take amazing courage. And it would be courage far greater than you and I possess. But that's what this author is saying. He's saying these, you, you are, to go back to Old Covenant Judaism, you have to do this specifically to the person of Jesus. Trample the Son of God underfoot. Think, keep in mind, John the Baptist said, the one who's coming after me is greater than I, and his sandals I do not deserve to untie. He said, I don't deserve to be trampled on by Jesus. So how much more could I never imagine stepping across or on Jesus to get out of this Christian thing that I've been doing. So that's what the author says. He says, how much more severely do you think somebody deserves to be punished who has done that to Jesus? You know, honestly, think of it this way. When God the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, what do you think he would do to somebody who makes Jesus a footstool for his feet? 
You can't even measure it. The, the words here are fierce, and the image is fierce. So you're trampling the Son of God underfoot. And then he goes beyond that and says, you are treating as a, as a common thing or a, a secular thing or an unholy thing, let's say, the blood of the covenant that sanctified him. Some people say this is teaching you can lose your salvation, but I don't think at all. The point is that it is the blood of Jesus that sets us apart as holy. Now he's calling that thing an unholy thing. That's what you're doing to the actual sacred blood of Jesus who has, who has made us as Christians holy. And then thirdly, it says, has insulted the spirit of grace. What does the ESV the say? The ESV has outraged the spirit outraged. of grace, which yeah. to me was actually one of the, the most fearful things here because the spirit of grace, that's mm. God's disposition to, you know, as you've said, in infinite kindness to, to us, us who deserve infinite wrath, but to outrage the spirit of grace, yeah. uh, that's, that is a terrifying thing. It is. I mean, it's the spirit, the kind and loving spirit has taken the blood of Jesus and applied it to us, to you personally. So the idea here is that you are turning your back on the third person of the Trinity who has delivered the gospel to you and has delivered the blood and presented it and offered it to you. And you are are outraging or insulting that spirit and turning your back on this incredibly generous and gracious offer by the Holy Spirit of God. That's what you're doing. It's extreme language here for what's going on. Yeah. It is the only time he's called the spirit of grace. Interesting. Here, isn't it? I think so, yeah. Yeah. That's Holy Spirit, the spirit of God. Many spirit names of Jesus, for the third person of Trinity, but spirit, spirit of, grace. of grace here. Powerful. And he quotes of the Old Testament. He says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And then another quote, the Lord will judge his people. And he summarized it by saying, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah, I mean, this statement here, it's actually commonly quoted, vengeance is mine. But then people don't generally quote the whole thing. Vengeance is mine. Some people even twist it saying vengeance is mine, says the person. You know, and the person's like, I'm going to take vengeance. You got to read the quote in context. (laughs) Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. My favorite is, I know the plans I have for you. Yeah, that one. Yeah. In this case, you know, we have a tendency toward vengeance, and that's exactly why Paul quoted this. Um, You know, when he said, do not take revenge, but leave room for the wrath of God. So Paul understood the full quote. For it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And that's the, the, the strength here. God actually says he will pay back here. He, this will not happen free of this charge. This doesn't get forgotten. No, no, I'm not going to forget this. I, I can't, you can you almost say, the father is saying, I cannot tell you how committed I am to seeing my son honored. He died for sinners like you. And he sat, he is my beloved son. And he sat at my right hand. So it is not free of charge to trample him and to treat his blood as an unholy thing and to take the sweet, gracious spirit I sent to apply the blood of Jesus and to outrage him. This is not a minor thing. I will take all of my power and all of my sovereign rule and all of my creative knowledge and I will use it to destroy you forever. I will make certain that you are paid back for what you're doing. That's the language here. Vengeance is mine. It is my job to repay, and I will do it. And then he says, beyond that, you know, uh, the Lord, the Lord will, judge, will his people. judge his people. You know, it's time for judgment to begin with the people of God. It starts with the people of God. And again, that has to do with the privileges. They have privileges. And you've been given privileges that 
Stone Age tribes in Erie and Jaya don't have at that point. Okay, they've never heard of Jesus. All they have are sunrises and sunsets and crops and babies that are born, and they have plenty of information, but they don't have all of the things you had. What you had was a full, clear, apostolic presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. You had it all. You had every explanation of the New Testament. You had signs and wonders done in front of you. You had all of this, and you turn your back on it. I'm going to see to it that you'll be punished in proportion to your knowledge. To whom much is given, much is required. And if this is what you do with it, terrifying. So this is what I, I want to say, a warning to my own children, your children, you, not me, because I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but I was raised in kind of a Christian home, Roman Catholic, but nominal Roman Catholicism. But anyone raised in a really healthy Christian home, it is a terrifying thing to go to hell from a family like that because God punishes in proportion to knowledge. And so I know you, Joel, were raised in a wonderful Christian family. Your parents loved you, poured Christ into you from an early age. And praise God, you're walking with Christ, and I have no fears for you. But the idea here is that it, it, is, a, it is a very terrifying thing to turn your back on knowledge. And so God says, look, judgment begins with my people. I will judge my people if they have received all these benefits and they don't live a life honoring to me. Yeah, and then he rounds it out by saying it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is. It is a fearful thing. And so later he will say, our God is a consuming fire. It is a fearful thing for God to be your enemy. You know, like we, we say very, very beautifully, and it's a wonderful thought. Uh, if God is for us, who could be against us? But this is the opposite idea here. If God is against you, who could be for you? Uh, you can see in Revelation 6 where it says, then all of these unbelievers will flee to the mountains and the hills and say to the mountains and hills, fall on us and cover us from the wrath of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? And so it's a terrifying thing here to have God as your enemy. Again, the book of Amos says, if they go up to the top of Mount Carmel, from there I'll bring them down. If they go down to the depths of the sea, from there I'll bring them up and I'll command the serpent to bite them. If they go as far as the east is from the west, even there I will find them, I will hunt them down. That's the omnipresence of God. You can't flee away from God. And so it's a terrifying thing. you know. And, and, and in Amos there, he says, I will fix my eyes on them for evil and not for good. That's hell. God fixing his eyes on you. So yes, this is, I would say, along with Revelation 14 and some other passage, Revelation 20, which talks about the lake of fire, I would say one of the most terrifying sections of the entire Bible. Yeah. Well, as we close this podcast, I want to ask you just a couple questions, um, some, some applications. I know good teaching is supposed to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And so um, I, I trust that this text has done this already. But uh, maybe you could go a little further. And someone who is, is greatly disturbed by this text, maybe, um, maybe they're finding their se- themselves in great fear. Um, how are you going to comfort them? And then the opposite, someone who just kind of discards this as not really relevant, um, what would you say to them? So address each side. Sure. Well, there is, praise God, a refuge from the wrath of God. And it is God himself in his son, Jesus Christ. God is the only one that can deliver out of his hand. And he does that to Christians. And so the entire idea here is flee to Christ, trust in Christ. So the warning here is don't flee away from Christ. Don't trample Jesus. Don't trample his blood. So what I would say is 
come to Christ, esteem Christ as the Son of God, esteem His blood as infinitely valuable. Understand if you do esteem His blood and do trust that He is the Son of God and your mediator and your Savior, He will save you. You will not experience the fearsome wrath of God. It's just that simple. It's, some, it's so simple a child could understand it. A three or four or five-year-old could understand that Jesus is a great Savior. We're not looking to make this complicated. So if you're afraid, well, good. Praise God. Flee to Christ. He'll save you. He will welcome you. He will not turn you away. Anyone who's terrified, like the, the parable of the tax collector and the, and the Pharisee, the Pharisee and the tax collector, and one of them is arrogant and confident and, like you said, comfortable and, and complacent, I would say. And the other one is terrified and beats his breast and won't even look up and say, be merciful to me, O God, the sinner. And he said, that one went home justified. He said, be merciful to me, the sinner. So the comfort I would give is if you're afraid, good. Flee to Christ and you'll find forgiveness. He will comfort you. He will forgive you and welcome you. But if on the other hand, you are sinning, you think very little of Jesus, you think it's no big deal to walk away from church or from your Christian heritage, First of all, I'm surprised you're listening to this podcast, but it's pretty close to a miracle that you are. But I want to say to you, um, flee to Christ. Don't take this lightly. This, these words were meant for someone such as you. Uh, so the, the warnings have their role. Now, I would say for the, for the normal listener to a podcast like this, you listen to that and say, what am I supposed to do with this? I think I'm walking with the Lord. I, I think my life is going well. I enjoy good Christian teaching. I know I struggle with sin, but I, I'm walking well with the Lord. What should I do with a warning like this? Well, I think store away, store it away in your mind and, and let it continue to work on you and get you to fear sin and to keep walking you know, with Christ. And also store it away for a time when you may need to minister to someone else who's walking away from Christianity and apostatizing. So yes, this is meant to be terrifying. And, and as John Newton said in Amazing Grace, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And then grace, my fear is relieved. Yeah. Well, thank you, Andy, for the insights on that text. That was episode 27 in the book of Hebrews. Please join us next time, and we'll talk about the exhortation to endurance. We need to run our race with endurance. And that is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.